Hello and welcome back to the second season of Investing for Ocean Impact. I'm Dorothy Herr. In season one, we gave you the business case for conserving our ocean. Now, for season two, we're diving even deeper and covering some of the newest and most exciting ideas around ocean finance. We'll be talking blue bonds, high seas and more. However, as someone who works on innovative blue finance on a daily basis, I still encounter the question, why should we engage with private finance in the first place? While the contributions from different private finance actors have seen increased recognition, not everyone seems to be on board with this new world. So today we're tackling this question and criticism head-on, with help from two leading experts. I'd like to welcome Ivo Mulder, head of the UN Environment Programme's Climate Finance Unit. Hi, Dorothy. Thanks for having me. And Melissa Garvey, Global Director of Ocean Protection at the Nature Conservancy. Hi, Dorothy. I'm happy to be here today. So, Ivo, let's jump straight in. Why do we need private finance for ocean conservation? I mean, I think the private sector is currently more part of the problem than part of the solution. If you think about um, big infrastructure projects, uh, hotels along the coast, um, depletion of fisheries, it's really about taking and not giving back. Um, so I think one reason is to try and turn it around and see where the private sector can be more part of the solution. And the second is that the amount of philanthropic capital isn't enough to cover the cost of marine protected areas and a lot of conservation of coral reefs and restocking depleted fishing stocks. So the government itself will need to increase the amount of money, but the private sector will also have to do its share, basically. Melissa, do you agree? Will we need more private finance to keep ocean conservation alive and even increase it? Absolutely. But let me just start with the premise that oceans are critical to human well-being. I mean, this is 90% of the habitable planet on Earth, and it produces 50% of the oxygen we breathe. And oceans are the source of food and income for more than 3 billion people globally. We also know that oceans just have tremendous value in the world. So, you know, global marine ecosystem services, you know, the gross value is estimated at about $49.7 trillion. So there's a lot of value in our oceans, but we also know that, you know, just protecting that value alone, it's not enough to keep our oceans healthy. We have to be tackling climate change. We have to be managing the oceans sustainably. And to do all of that, we need funding. And that's where the private sector comes in. We know that you know, public funding and philanthropic resources, it's not going to be enough to be able to address the challenges that we face. You know, there's, there's no silver bullet, but there are a lot of silver buckshot. And I think it was Bill McKibben who maybe made that famous years ago. And I think the private sector is just an essential part of that solution, given the importance of oceans for all of us. And do you see there is an active interest from the private sector and private finance in particular to get active on this? Or do they need to be further pushed to do so? I think that there is an interest. And I think that there's a lot of the enabling conditions that all of us can be supporting. You know, it's ensuring that there's the science 
behind the work that there is the you know good data, but there's also got to be these radical collaborations that are necessary to be uh, you know actually spurring the innovation that's needed for the private sector to be able to engage effectively. Yeah, Lisa, I mean, I, I don't disagree with you. Um, I think the private sector increasingly also understand they they want and need to be part of it. But wouldn't you agree that it's it's just a few leaders who would be contacting IUCN or the Nature Conservancy or the United Nations and that the majority are just continuing business usual that is leading to the problems that we're seeing on a day-to-day basis? You know, I, I don't expect uh, the private sector to actually engage with the IUCN or Nature Conservancy necessarily. I, I actually see that the private sector independently can understand the value of oceans because it's not just in the best interest of the planet and humanity to be protecting our, our oceans. It's actually in the best interest of the corporate sector to sustain that sustainable blue economy. So I think there's a realization that we're seeing around the world that as climate change is accelerating and ocean health is declining, you know, the entire global economy is being put at risk. So there's an inherent need uh, to be engaging in this space to protect the oceans, but there's also no inherent contradiction between clean oceans, healthy ecosystems, and financial profit and economic prosperity. The opportunities are there, and I think it's incumbent upon all of us to help support and create more visibility on those opportunities in the private sector. But Ivo, for example, do you think what we just heard from Patagonia and that they're going to basically put uh, the profits that they make and they won't reinvest them in the company, that they will use them for climate and basically nature as their biggest stakeholder. Is that a turning point where we see those actors acting by themselves? Um, no, I don't think so. I think it is really based in this case on the leadership of Patagonia having indeed that vision that many other companies don't have and perhaps the bandwidth to do that. I think there's a growing recognition from other companies that they can or need to change, but Many are also in voracious competitions. And despite sort of science being clear, I think the likes of Patagonia are, are really the minority at the moment. I, I don't think we should not make it important. It is very important. And I think it is a turning point in the sense that some of them are really doing much more than they've ever been doing. And, and Patagonia has been good because they've been providing some of the pretext profits to different kinds of activities and are now going a step further. But I think it's more the exception than the rule. That's That's what I wanted to say. So is that then still in a way the criticism we hear maybe for more traditional conservationists to sort of making a, a deal with the devil in terms of pushing them to, you know, for the private sector to put money into nature conservation? It's it's a good question. I mean, my in, in my professional career, I've always been interested in the intersection between economics, finance and the private sector. And how do you make a case for governments, but especially for banks and for companies in the real economy to take the environment and society seriously. And I do think there is a, a space for innovation, a space for leaders to work with the Nature Conservancy, with the UN, with IEC and many other organizations. We should just not assume that that is going to be enough to tackle the big global problems related to say, ocean conservation, for example. The regulation will be needed. The benefit of the leaders acting, in my view, is also showcasing to regulators that 
it is possible to do some things in the right way. And regulators are often fearful to act because they're fearing loss of jobs in the fishery sector or in hotels if you close down uh, certain parts. It's also a possibility for international organizations and civil society to say, like, some of the leaders are doing it. You can actually regulate to create a level playing field. But we should not be naive to assume that the majority will simply follow suit by default. I think there's also the opportunity just to be highlighting where these private sector solutions can come to play and start mainstreaming ways that the ocean can be better valued. You know, we've been working with governments around the world to help them refinance their sovereign debt and use those cost savings in support of commitments uh, for large-scale ocean protection. And the opportunities to be scaling this are really tremendous. You know, we're projecting to be able to put about $1.6 billion in support of ocean conservation over the next five to 10 years using this approach. So I think, um, you know, it's not so much just expecting that the finance industry, for example, is going to see this on their own, but to be building these replicable models that can be scaled and that can be, you know, really meeting these multiple needs that governments have to help support their economies but to also ensure that we're bringing in the needs of the communities and stakeholders on the ground as well in support of ocean conservation. And I agree. I mean, I think a lot of good work has been done, is being done. But let's also not close our eyes for the enormity of the challenge we have in front of us. So it's 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 not either or. I think the glass is sort of half full. And let's sort of acknowledge everything that is being done, especially over the past few years. But at the same time, let's also be cognizant of the fact of how much the investment needs are and the fact that many do want to work with you and others. Uh, but there's also a big group that just doesn't care or or is ignorant of the fact, basically. And where do you see the opportunities not just to reduce the negative impacts and risks for environment, but actually investing in nature-based solutions? What type of tools or opportunities do you see? Uh, Dorothy, I think um, blended finance or where taxpayers' money from different countries is being used to crowd in private finance. That has started, but it's still very small. It often takes about two years, and I think we need to move from two years to two or three months. And the second point is reform of fiscal policies, including uh, harmful fishery subsidies or for consumers simply to pay the true price of the products they're consuming. Um, so integrating what is now being externalized. Melissa, from your end, where do you see the opportunities for nature-based solution to get them also done in a much quicker time or the investments done than we see now? I do want to agree with, with Ivo that there's not yet enough done. Like, there's no question, right? There's a financing gap right now of, what, $750 billion a year across all of the realms, terrestrial, freshwater, and ocean. In the meantime, you know, we are pursuing efforts, like I mentioned, with our Blue Bonds for Ocean Conservation Strategy, where we're refinancing debt. But that's just one approach. Um, there's other efforts where we're trying to mainstream opportunities on nature-positive business. And uh, an example that I, I think may have come up in one of your prior podcasts, Dorothy, is the work that we've been doing on reef insurance. And that was just built on you know, strong science and modeling that showed the value of intact reefs and helping protect communities from storm damage. And so we are able to work with the insurance industry to, again, mainstream that science and build a, an insurance product that's actually protecting the reef, that protects the $10 billion tourism industry in, in the area in Cancun, Mexico. 
So I think that's another example of how we can partner together with some unusual partnerships between, you know, the Nature Conservancy and our scientists with the insurance industry to come up with these new solutions. But I also want to highlight, you know, we need to make sure that communities are also part of any of these solutions. And an example that I want to give there is the work that we've been doing um, in the tuna sector. So the Nature Conservancy has partnered with the Republic of Marshall Islands and created an approach that's really designed to transform the entire global canned tuna supply chain. So we created a a joint venture company uh, that supplies canned tuna, and and it's now supplying it to Walmart stores in the United States. But the reason I mention this is that, you know, this is proof positive that that can be achieved at a way that's also cost competitive and it's at scale. And what it does is it raises the bar for the entire industry about, you know, the sourcing of all of that tuna that's associated with electronic monitoring, um, you know, ensuring that we've got strict uh, fisheries management associated and also having there be 100% of the long-term net profits go back to support conservation within the Marshall Islands. And, and um, it, it really is um, sort of one of those multi-benefit approaches that we think can work. And again, you know, the opportunity here is just to be demonstrating the possibility of having sustainable blue economy approaches that really can work. Eva, back to you. What are some of the issues around safeguards that we need to think about when working with private sector or private sector finance for ocean conservation? I mean, I think what uh, Melissa mentioned around tracking and making sure that fishing isn't being done beyond the carrying capacity of of that tuna stock, for example, in the Marshall Islands is is very important and where civil society can and need to play a role uh, to make sure that it's done in a sustainable, long-term and responsible manner. Some of the other issues are are also more external. Like if the price of a commodity increases, then the pressure to take more increases. And you, you see that with a lot of different things around the world. And then it becomes very difficult unless you have an extremely good relationship with local communities, fishers, fishermen, etc. I think the impact of climate change on Coastal communities, for example, where fishing stocks are located. Um, so those are some of the external threats that that need to be taken into account. In addition to making sure there's good and robust minimum positive impact standards and and, and safeguards uh, put in place. Melissa, do you agree, or do you see any other risks in engaging with private sector finance, and how do you work against those or making sure they're minimized? Look, there's always going to be risks working with the private sector. And I think that's where there's the opportunity to do a few things. One, you know, work with governments, work on the policy side to make sure that there's appropriate regulatory frameworks in in, in place. I think there's also the opportunity to manage some of the risks and concerns by creating some of these innovative partnerships that also are recognizing the importance of ensuring that stakeholder and communities are, are part of the solutions and ensure that there's a strong science. And again, some of that is uh, part of the regulatory frameworks, you know, ensuring that there's integrity so that we're not, you know, blue washing in the same way that you've seen greenwashing in many circumstances. But I, I think that there's also, you know, an opportunity to be spurring the innovation that's needed. And as I mentioned, just ensuring that there's that cooperation between the, the public sectors and private investors as well. I don't think that, again, there's any single solution here. And it's going to be something that, you know, we need to be 
we need to be testing and we need to be trying alternatives uh, because I think that the problem facing us with the biodiversity and climate crisis is just you know too big for us to sit on our hands for too long. So basically, you agree with what Ivo said before. We need to speed up the decision making, but there will be also need to take more risk, especially well, looking at some of the, the issues around the carbon markets, for example. Is it still worth taking those risks? I think we have to take risks. There's no question, right? The, the problem is too big. As climate change is accelerating and we're seeing the ocean health deteriorate, the global economy is going to be at risk if we do nothing in this space. So not only are there physical and economic livelihoods that are being threatened, Industry is also on a trajectory of unsustainable profitability if we don't intervene. And ensuring that there is alignment between clean oceans and healthy ecosystems, as well as financial profit and economic prosperity, is just it's incumbent on us to ensure that we are on that path for the future. So we can't wait and be too cautious. Risks are going to be part of the equation here. There's just no question. The risk, if we don't act, is even greater. Yeah, I mean, in my view, it's like two minutes before 12. Uh, I think if we would have acted uh, 30, 40 years ago when um, when the first reports were coming out, then things would have been on a better path. But uh, as Melissa was saying, this, the challenges are so numerous that being perfect on everything means delays that we simply can't afford. Um, so it's it's about taking calculated risk. And that also means not knowing everything before you dive into something. I think we're we're really at that stage now whether it's on blue carbon, whether that's on uh, what kind of companies uh, we would be partnering with who may have been part of the problem but really want to turn the page, etc., uh, etc. Et it is about just saying, do we want to do it or not, basically. And sometimes that may be a no, but I don't think it is about sort of closing off the relationship by the international community with the private sector, including private finance. Um, I think they do understand that we're basically cutting the branch in which we're sitting and, and more and more people are realizing that. Uh, and a lot of CEOs of companies also have kids and they want to make sure there's a livable world for them as well. And how, well, what do you tell those people that are concerned about using taxpayers' money to put this on the right path? I've seen it with the Dutch government uh, for one of the guarantee funds that we set. So one part in the ministry was basically saying, why should we provide taxpayers' money to a bank or to a, a, a new entity that provides guarantees to a bank for them to lend at different terms? Shouldn't they be doing that by themselves? Uh, but unless governments regulate strictly, uh, most companies will simply operate in the space that regulators require them. So. It is about using taxpayers' money, and if that is being used to change incentives that could have a greater leverage effect than if they were to use that same amount of money in pure grants, basically. So, Melissa, what do you think is needed to change the system in a big scale? So what I would say is all of the work that we're doing at the Nature Conservancy, where we're working on innovative finance approaches, we're also thinking about, is there a system scale lever that could actually ensure that there's even bigger results? And let me give the example of our Blue Bonds for Ocean Conservation Strategy. There's a way to actually ensure that what may seem like a one-off solution for any one particular country is something where you could actually be demonstrating the value to the larger system. And so this kind of approach of ensuring that you've got biodiversity objectives associated with debt refinancing or debt restructuring is something that the IMF and the World Bank could be taking on in all of their lending practices. 
doesn't need to be something that the Nature Conservancy itself is doing on a one-off basis, country by country. We're happy to do that. But there are ways to scale that even beyond what we can do at the national level. In my view, and, and this is being highlighted in many reports, of course, the systemic issues are around reform and of, of subsidies uh, for, for fisheries. It's about embedding conservation in trade agreements, but also, as Melissa was saying, uh, making sure that when the IMF or IBRD, the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, come in and talk about debt restructuring, for example, that they don't ask for countries to lower the environmental standards, but basically build in additional nature and climate objectives as part of it, because otherwise it will simply offset a lot of the good work that is being done by well, the likes of the UN, by ASEAN, by, by the Nature Conservancy and many others. So I think it is also some of the larger organizations who are working on the systemic level in terms of government lending, etc., that some of these issues are built into some of those government lending programs. Great. And Melissa, your last marching order to the world of private sector finance. What do you want to see happen next? When we started this conversation, I was recognizing the importance of oceans for all of us. And I think as we look to opportunities in the ocean, you know, we're recognizing that the equivalent of a country's GDP, if we were just looking at the oceans, you know, it's $2.5 trillion annually. That would make the oceans the world's seventh largest economy in the world after France and the UK, but still ahead of Brazil and Italy. There's so much opportunity in the ocean space to be thinking about how any private sector finance that can be benefiting from that those products of the ocean can also be helping the overarching future of our oceans. And I think it's incumbent upon all sectors, whether it's you know private uh, sector, public sector, to be ensuring that we're really utilizing these resources in a way that can be ensuring the future of our oceans as well as all humanity. But on the public sector side, you know, really focusing on those appropriate regulatory frameworks, but also identifying and ensuring that there's space for that innovation, fostering the cooperation that's truly needed between the public guarantors and the private investors. Whatever can be done to ensure that there's that predictability in the impact investment space and the ocean investment space, I think is really going to serve us all well to ensure that future that, frankly, we all are relying on. Thank you to my wonderful guests, Evo Mulder and Melissa Garvey. As you can see, there are many good reasons why private finance needs to get engaged. Yet given where the world stands with climate change and the biodiversity crisis, opinions differ on where the best action or pressure points exist. If you want to find out more about the subject, visit our website bluenaturalcapital.org where you can read about some amazing case studies on how private finance can help to fund the ocean. Stay tuned for the next episode, when we are revisiting one of the projects we covered last season. Since our conversation, the headquarters was hit by a devastating natural disaster. We're going to hear how blended finance has helped them restructure and rebuild. Investing for Ocean Impact is a fresh air production on behalf of ICN. It was produced by Phil Sansom with production assistance from Kamau Joseph. I'm Dorothy Herr. Thank you for listening. Listening.